0: I was visiting college friends and playing pool when news came over the radio that the notorious B.I.G. was dead in a drive-by shooting at age 24. Even though I hadn't listened to much Biggie at the time, I knew this was an important moment. The two titans of 90s hip-hop were dead, and Nas was set on a course to spend three decades releasing albums about how surprised he is to be alive. Christopher Wallace grew up in New York in the 70s and 80s. He attended and dropped out of George Westinghouse Career and Technical Education High School in Brooklyn, also the alma mater of Jay-Z and Buster Rhymes, and would entertain friends by rapping at school and on the street. After a stint in jail for selling drugs, Wallace made his first demo tape under the name Biggie Smalls. The guy collected nicknames like some people collect snow globes. The tape was featured in the Source Magazine's unsigned columns, column, which brought it to the attention of Diddy, who went by Sean Puffy Combs at the time. Ready to Die was released in 1994 to immediate acclaim and commercial success, and you know the rest of the story. Today on Hidden Jukebox, Big Papa.
1: Notorious B.I.G. also tried out for uh, the bass part uh, in Metallica after Cliff Burton died, but he didn't get it, unfortunately. This is the only falsity what's, that I'll tell this entire. Okay. I
0: was, gonna, I was like, what's the, what's the punchline no, going to no, be? That's th- it? That,
1: that's it. That's the punchline. Uh, I will say that when I read this this intro, I was like, there's no way that he's going to get through George Westinghouse's career in technical education high school in Brooklyn without fucking that up. And you did it. So I'm, I'm very impressed. I, I'm I'm very impressed.
0: Um, So why, Jake, you chose the song. Why did you choose Big Papa rather than Juicy?
1: Uh, Mainly the hook okay like i feel like this isn't this isn't a rap track that i can rap along the entire thing like i i don't know all the words but you hear the hook and you instantly instantly know what it is and i like juicy also has a great hook but not not as catchy as this this is uh Pulled from a song called Between the Sheets by the Isley Brothers. And they didn't do much with the right. melody. They, they basically just pulled it, put a different beat behind it, and called it a song. And one of the things that uh, we... I don't know. This is probably the fifth rapper hip-hop track we've done mm-hmm. on this podcast. And we never really discussed what what it takes to hear an old song... Here's something in it where you go, Oh, I can use that for something, make it into a completely different song, and then write a completely different hook or melody or whatever over the top of it. I think people take for granted how difficult that is.
0: Oh yeah, I think you're right. Like um and the, the people who were who were the best at it, like like Jay Dilla, like are legends.
1: Right. And and you know, you you know that there are songs out there that have the same chord changes as a different song, like right. I I always use uh, Last Dance with Mary Jane and Danny California. They're basically the exact same song, but different melodies over the top of it. So. People go, you know, when, when hip-hop first started getting big and sampling started getting big, people were going, well, they're just using somebody else's song and spouting lyrics over it. And I go, well, you try it and see how you do <laughs> yeah, exactly. it. Yeah,
0: exactly. It's not easy. Um, so the song also samples the, the, the uh, you know, the title line, you know, I love it when they call me Big Papa, uh, is sampled from an earlier song featuring Biggie as uh, on a guest verse. Um, do you, have you listened to this song? I have not. It's really fun. So the song is called Dolly My Baby by Supercat, who's like a dance hall artist. Um and so it's kind of it's kind of like, you know, a reggae dancehall kind of song with a bunch of different features on it. And Biggie comes in at the end. It's a super fun, high energy song.
1: I mean, how old could he have been at that time? Because I'm pretty sure he was 22 or 23 when this came out.
0: <sighs> Younger because because he died sure. in this. This came out in 94. He died at 24 in 1997. Yeah. So so he was 21 when this came out. Um, and so, yeah, he was probably 19 when he did the feature on that track
1: that's that's insane um yeah th- this was his debut album um technically only the second album that diddy had produced he he had been working as i saw an article that called him um and i think an unsuccessful a and r rep for uptown records because <laughs> uh,
0: like he got fired and started his own label right?
1: yeah exactly um bad boy yeah uh so he got his name out there from producing part of Mary J. Blige's What's the 411. Yeah. Um, that was pretty much the only major project that he had worked on at the time. And then, as you said, discovered Biggie, gave him a chance, and this completely blew up.
0: Yeah. Um, we should we should do that song, What's the one? No, was was that was that nineties? That was nineties. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like uh, that's one of those like, you know, when you can point to like one moment, oh like that's when that's when white people learned that term. <laughs> <laughs> right?
1: Right. This is when white people learned the term Big Papa.
0: <laughs> <laughs> True. I,
1: I'd never heard it before this.
0: Um yeah, so this, this song, like, I love the simplicity of this era of rap. Like, you really nailed it. Like, you you find the right sample, you put the right beat with it, maybe you add, like, one synth line, and then it is up to the rapper to carry the rest. And so, like, it's a big responsibility. Yeah. Uh- and, uh, and, you know, Biggie is, like, is recognized as one of the greatest of all time for very good reason, because, like... One thing that I that I enjoy about listening to them is that he's got this incredible laid-back style where, where you can tell, like, rhythmically he is so good that he must have practiced his ass off.
1: I know, but he was so young. I know. It's or like,
0: maybe he was just legitimately a prodigy, but I think both.
1: Probably. I, I mean, it sounds effortless the way that he does it, so maybe – Writing lyrics and and rapping for him was always effortless, but he has this this style to his rapping that I love. It's it's like so laid back that it feels like he's like dragging behind the beat. Yep, but it's it's still on point. I I don't know how it works. Like it's really clearly deliberate, but it's relaxed. Like like it feels. It feels like you're lounging in the club when you hear this song. Yes,
0: that's exactly it. Yeah, when I when I put the video on, I was like, oh, you know, I haven't seen this video in ages, but uh, and maybe maybe never, but like, yeah, this is exactly what I was envisioning. This kind of club.
1: Well, it, and it's funny because it's like certain songs you hear and you go. Oh, I can picture myself dancing at a club to this. And you hear this, song, you go, I can picture myself in a red yep. vinyl booth yep. drinking curvassier at a club to this.
0: <laughs> that's exactly S- it.
1: Same same but different.
0: Yeah, and it's partly that's partly the uh the groove, but it's also partly like, you know, like like all of the best rappers in their own way like he conjures up the whole scene in very few words. Yeah. Um, I mean, some rappers use many words to do that, which is also fine. But, uh, you know, Biggie Biggie was kind of minimalist in that way. So, uh, like, uh, I love, uh, however living better now, coogie sweater now. Um, <laughs> and uh, the, my other favorite line for this one is, uh, so we can steam on the way to the telly, go fill my belly, a T-bone steak, cheese, eggs, and Welch's grape. <laughs>
1: Uh, he also mentions Benz's in this song. Uh-huh. What was with Mercedes Benz and hip hop at in this era?
0: Well, I mean, like you you seize on like one luxury thing as a symbol, and then you like get tired of that and move on to a different one. J- think. By the
1: time we got to Jay Z, it was
0: Bentleys, right?
1: But but like a lot of people rapped about Benz's at this time. It was like that was the status symbol at the time.
0: That's true. Which which is kind of a dorky car now, right? Like it I, has been.
1: I don't know if I'd say that, but it's it's not like a. Holy shit, that guy must be loaded. He's driving a Benz. Like like I'd say in the early 90s, you had to have a pretty good amount of money to drive a oh, Mercedes sure. Benz. Now it's Again, I wouldn't call it a practical car, but it's not like a
0: Oh, how many do you have in in your garage? Three.
1: Just the, just the three in my six-car garage.
0: Yeah, but he also calls out, he, like, he was a Lexus guy also.
1: Uh, he mentions a Rover in this as well. The so.
0: Rover, yeah, the GS3. <laughs> the, uh, I mean, that's the Lexus. The GS3 is the Lexus, but also the Range Rover, yeah.
1: I, I'm like, does he mention GS3? He
0: does. Is, isn't that in this song? <sighs> I think he does. That's a Lexus GS300.
1: God, I probably just this, didn't catch that. that. I've
0: now, like, uh, thrown in everything I know about cars. <laughs> I've got nothing <laughs> left.
1: <laughs> like, how do you know this stuff? Um so I do I do find it ironic um tragic fitting that that this album was called Ready to Die and he did record his second album but it came out 2 weeks after his death um and that album was called Life, Life after, after Death, death yes. which I think they had already picked the name by the Oh time yeah no b-
0: they didn't they didn't like you know reprint the whole thing yeah. with a new name yeah. T- yeah, it, 2 it, weeks exactly,
1: Yeah exactly exactly like it's it's like he it wrote his own script um, this was the height of the rap wars. It, it was for lack, lack of a better way of saying it, not fun to watch for anybody.
0: No, it was, it was like, uh, you know, I, I feel like, like, I, I'm not really the person to comment on it, but it sucked.
1: I, I think anybody who lived through it, it, it's okay to comment on it. This, this East coast, West coast battle was was completely pointless. And I, I think, I hope that that entire music scene learned from it because there was kind of this uh, call for peace by, by Diddy at one point after this. Um, but, you know, they were both making great music, like the East Coast scene, the West Coast scene. It was just that the East Coast felt like because they started rap that they owned it. Um, personally, I've always been more of a West Coast guy. Uh, sure, you, I,
0: I, I'm more of an East Coast guy. I was gonna yeah. say
1: your your favorite rap album of all all time is Illmatic, right? Illmatic,
0: yeah. yeah. Like, uh, I love I love Thirty Six Chambers, yeah. So, but uh, I don't know, like, I <laughs> I don't feel that strongly about it, and kind of don't understand why anyone ever did
1: <laughs> feel that strongly about East Coast versus West yes. Coast. Yeah, music is music. It's it's the the strangest part about it to me is there's no other genre where people do this where it's like. Uh, I'd like Pink Floyd but they're English And I hate the English So
0: (laughs) Right You know it's yeah Like Well I will
1: say that the only feud In uh, hip hop or any other style of music That I really enjoyed Was the one between Coolio and Weird Al
0: Right And uh, like Coolio like later said Like you know like he he should have he should have been like on Weird Al's side, right?
1: Right, but there was a rumor that floated this. This all pertains to uh, Amish Paradise, and supposedly Weird Al did not get the permission from Coolio to uh, do a. Spoof on Gangster's Paradise Except he
0: definitely did Of course because, he did <laughs> Right
1: But but at the time Like I think they were both Doing the act to Gain publicity That and, is a good point And there was a rumor That Coolio Hung Weird Al From his feet Off of a balcony and, <laughs> and that mental picture To me Is like Never mind Music feuds Should happen Just so that I can picture Weird Al being dangled By his feet Over a balcony By Coolio
0: Yeah Um <laughs> Okay, so let's, let's go back to the uh, T-bone steak, cheese, eggs, and Welch's grape line for a minute. Yeah, I learned while researching this ep- for this episode that that last bit is a, a literary device called a tricolon, um, and it was one of Biggie's favorite things to do. Um, so there's another one in the same song, and he says, mad question askin', blunt passin', music blastin'. So a tricolon is when you list off three related things for emphasis, and usually it involves a rhyme or a repeated word or alliteration or something linguistic to tie them together. Um, and it if you listen to like how he does that in this song and many, many others of his songs, like it always breaks up the rhythm in a really interesting way and like adds contrast. And is
1: this term a linguistic term or is this a hip hop
0: term? It is a, it's a literary, like a, like a, yeah, it's a linguistic term. Do
1: you think that he knew this term?
0: I do not. Well, he was really, really good at it. Um, but I mean, maybe it's possible he did.
1: Do do you find the way that he writes his lyrics similar to members of the Wu-Tang Clan or to Nas um, or to Puff Daddy and anybody else that was in the bad boy scene.
0: I don't think I don't think like uh, I'm going to come up with a good answer on the fly. Like I wish I had like an example to point to. I think my gut feeling is yes in some ways.
1: I I feel that it's yes in that we discussed in the Illmatic episode this way that Nas had a way of bringing uh, rhymes back in like yes. later in verses. And Biggie does that, too, where, where early hip hop was rhyme this line with the next line, rhyme the next line with the next line. And Biggie does things where he will throw in a, a lyric and kind of go away from it and then come back to something that rhymes with it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't think that's like, you know, particularly like uh, it's it's not something that was like, you know, associated with like a particular style or region of rap at this time. It was like everyone was discovering this. Right. And, it, and Biggie was certainly one of the pioneers of it, along with along with the other artists that you mentioned. But like, and, and you know, they were constantly stealing ideas from each other, of course, because that's music. Um, But uh, but yeah, like everyone, everyone all at once, like in the 90s discovered, oh, we can do way more complex rhyme schemes.
1: And and it's interesting because in the 70s in rock music, you know, Prague had Mm -hmm. its moment and then music became more and more simple if you want to have a pop hit. And it was almost the opposite with hip hop where it's like you've got to show just how talented you can be with your lyrics in order to make it by the time you hit the 90s.
0: Yeah, and I honestly like you know this is time for the grumpy old man segment. Like you know there there is a lot of today's hip hop that I really love, but also a lot of it is just feels too complex for for me. Like that it's it feels like a, an exam to listen to.
1: Yeah, uh, I think that is a result of Eminem, if nobody else.
0: Sure, that makes
1: sense. Where it was like so fast and so much going on, and people went. Uh, i I've got to keep up with that,
0: yeah, but not not just the not just the the rap but uh, and the lyrics, but but also like getting in like seventeen different production elements
1: well, and then I've get a, got gotta go the opposite direction with my old man complaint, which is mumble rap is not like that at all and drives me absolutely crazy and I don't okay, get it. that's true. <laughs> I like it's really simple and I don't understand anything <laughs> they're saying and it's not really my thing. but hey. Uh, They're making money off it. Sure. So kind of related to this, kind of unrelated, a thought that I had while researching this episode is I was thinking about radio and radio programming and how basically since the dawn of radio, stations have programmed to a specific genre. Sure. This was kind of the height of MTV showing videos. I mean, the 90s in general were until... TRL came along and the real world and everything kind of moved over to getting away from videos, but MTV and VH one who were owned by the same company were the only place to go for videos and they had to fit in every single genre under the sun on one station in 24 hours. Yeah. And they did it seamlessly, like pretty seamlessly where There wasn't I didn't feel like there was one genre that got alienated except maybe country. I was going
0: to say that. Yeah.
1: Except we covered Shania Twain a few months ago. And and Shania Twain, you saw all the time on MTV. And it was a little more mainstream country. But uh, they just had a way of of putting everything in there. And I thought it was really good for music because I think that it created opportunities for people who wouldn't otherwise listen to a certain genre to listen to it.
0: Yeah. I think the other place that this happened, like to some extent was college radio. Right.
1: L- like KXP still does that. Yeah. Where, where they will play a little bit of everything and people will, will keep it dialed to that. Um, and, and discover new things that they wouldn't listen to otherwise. So in that way, I think MTV really, really helped shape people's musical tastes because y- you meet, Baby boomers who are like I'm a rock person I'm a yeah. jazz person And I think that You meet Gen X Millennials And they tend to have Much much wider Yeah for sure Tastes So it, it it's cool It's just It's just an observation I had But watching this video again Made me think about it Where I was like I loved this video And then I also loved Like Nirvana videos Oh yeah
0: At the exact same time Um. So I want to go back to something we were talking about about uh like how how difficult it is to be like as as rhythmically like accurate and inventive and free as uh as Biggie was and I don't know whether he went through this same kind of progression but like I was Helping, I was, I was talking to a friend who was learning to play uh, the 10,000 Maniacs song, Verity Cries, on the guitar with like a very complicated finger picking guitar arrangement of the song. And uh, got to a point where I have gotten with songs also where, like, you know, at first it's like you are just like struggling to like get all the notes. And then you get to a point where, okay, I can play this uh, kind of, but I, I can't control the rhythm. The rhythm is controlling me and I'm like trying to keep up. Then you get to a point where, okay, I can play this just in a robotic sort of way. Like I'm right on the beat and like I am playing the song now. And you have to really like live in that for a while before you can get to, okay, like I'm going to be just free enough with the rhythm that like I'm bringing back like emotion and feeling and, uh, you know, sense of interest and drama. So now I am in charge of the rhythm. And I feel like one of the, what we're talking about when, we, when we're talking about like how how we love Biggie's flow is that he is in charge of the rhythm.
1: Right. I don't think that he had to go through. I, I agree. Through through that process in order to get to where he would on a song. I think that they would turn on the beat and he was the type of person who could just start going for it. I don't think that he was writing lyrics on the fly, but I think that he was finding his flows Pretty effortless, effortlessly and naturally
0: Yeah, so like when we talk about him being like, you know, behind the beat in a very appealing way Like, you know, if, uh, if, if Biggie like did everything he did but was like smack on the beat, like perfect every time We wouldn't be talking about him because it wouldn't be interesting
1: Right, do you think that you are the first person who has ever uh, compared 10,000 Maniacs to the Notorious B.I.G.?
0: I don't know. God, I hope so. <laughs> I I think so because can we, can we do ten thousand maniacs next next time? Uh, probably.
1: Okay. I, I have another idea. but right. but it's it's a good possibility. I I was talking with a friend of the show, Rich McLaughlin, re- recently about how ten thousand maniacs MTV unplugged to me is the best MTV unplugged ever recorded.
0: I I think I agree. I listen to it all the time.
1: That that's interesting because I I thought that was a little bit uh contentious.
0: Um. I don't know. Like, what are what are the other uh, the other contenders? I mean, obviously Nirvana. Yeah, um, uh, Alice in Chains. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't like what there aren't really any others besides the Nirvana and the and the. Is there a Cheryl Crow? There was a Cheryl Crow. Like, were, were there any others besides Ten Thousand Maniacs and Nirvana that like people still talk about today and like still sell? Today? Yes,
1: and you're not realizing it. Eric
0: Clapton. Oh, of course. Yeah, I, I try to think about Eric Clapton as little as humanly possible. Yeah,
1: yeah. I I know he he's he's uh, really dug himself into a hole as of late. Uh, I I've lost respect for the guy, but it's it's a good unplugged episode. It's just not nearly as good as Ten Thousand Maniacs. So, speaking of Notorious B.I.G., if you haven't listened to the Ten Thousand Maniacs MTV Unplugged <laughs> recording recently, go back and listen to that because it's uh, lit.
0: Did they did they ever do like hip hop unplugged? Uh well
1: there was the Lauren Hill one that we talked about. Right, of course. But it wasn't really hip hop right. and it was kind of a mess. But I, I'm almost positive that they did. Um, um
0: I have talked about it before. I love the whole unplugged episode, by the way. I don't
1: but, even remember that one.
0: Um it I think I don't think MTV really considered it a success. It was like all over the place. I, I love it. It's it's a beautiful mess. Um Okay, so yeah, we'll do we'll do 10,000 Maniacs at some point. Anything else to say about Biggie Smalls? Uh,
1: I don't have anything else to say about Biggie Smalls, but I do want to say I'm, I'm looking up these, uh, if there were hip-hop unplugged, and there was a whole series of Okay,
0: them. I figured there must be. N-
1: 1991, in the early days of Unplugged, every episode featured multiple artists. Oh. Giving us shows like Great White and Damn Yankees. Okay. Sinead O'Connor and The Church, Rat, and Vixen. Boy, I am not remembering these. But it says the most successful of this run was an episode billed as Yo! Unplugged Rap, which featured LL Cool J, MC Light, A Tribe Called Quest, and De La Soul. This
0: sounds, oh wow. Can we watch this? Is this on you? I want to watch this I, immediately. I have
1: got to see this. That has got to be incredible. That sounds so in, good. incredible. It says the highlight was LL Cool J, Tearing through Mama Said Knock You Out, teaching kids all over America to never wear white flaky deodorant while playing shirtless on national television. (laughs) Uh, People have teased me about the deodorant for years, but I love it. He said in 2010, it was raw. It was nasty. At least, you know, I wasn't stinking.
0: (laughs) Good for him. All right. I like that. Uh, I feel like I feel like though, like for, for unplugged, I want I Ella Cool J to be wearing like a like an Oxford shirt. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, he's got to be wearing a flannel and sitting down playing fl- an acoustic yes, guitar. of course. Oh
0: god, this is this is a great idea. <laughs> a cashmere idea. sweater. Okay, speaking of Eric Clapton, so I was just in. Uh, I just got back from Colorado. I went to my first ever show at Red Rocks. Um, as Woo! I mentioned, it was uh, it was uh, Pink Floyd cover band Brit Floyd, um, which was very good. <laughs> They um, should be, and a couple of things about the show. So first of all, like I went to the weed store the day before, um, and I told the told the guy at the weed store that I was seeing a Pink Floyd cover band at Red Rocks, and he gave like hearty approval of this. And he said like, "But Roger Waters like has become like a kind of a bad dude, right?" I'm like, "Yeah, like uh, so." Then we talked about like all of like the old rock guys that are assholes, <laughs> like Roger Waters, Eric Clapton, uh, Van Morrison. I'm sure there are many, many more. Oh yeah um but uh the the show is great uh the two the two highlights were uh like one highlight one low light i guess um they had they had three female backup singers um who were unbelievably good one of them looked exactly like Sama hayek and neither of the others was any less good looking than her um wow <laughs> and they one of them did Uh, Like was on stage like just herself and did the great gig in the sky, which I did not imagine I would ever see someone attempt to sing live and fucking nailed it.
1: The only thing that I'm upset about with this entire story, which nobody would know, but (laughs) me being a music nerd know is you do realize that the three days before you went to Red Rocks. King Gizzard and Lizard Wizard were playing there.
0: I did know that, yes. I I I could have gone to that instead. uh, Except
1: that those sold out really, really fast. But I'm like, he is in Colorado 20 minutes from Red Rocks, and he's missing these shows. But
0: That's true. So it was like the night before? Uh, I just yeah. got there like the day before.
1: Yeah, they they played Friday night and you were there on Saturday night, correct?
0: Yes. So I so yes, so I missed that King Gizzard show.
1: That's a whirlwind of a trip. And you and you literally just went because you wanted to see Red Rocks, I wanted right?
0: to I wanted to visit two friends who we went, I went to the show with um and uh and just hang out and see whatever was playing at Red Rocks at a yeah. time I could go. And so this was this was a good choice. There was a great light show. The band was incredibly talented. Um the the musical director like uh like made uh, Guitarist was named Damian Darlington, which is a great English nice. guy name. Uh, the the low light was that they came back on for the encore and did comfortably numb. And they they had said like during the show, um, like uh, we, as you may know, we've been through a lot to get here this year. And we're like, no, we do not follow no. like <laughs> what's going on with it with a Pink Floyd cover band. So so Kelly, my friend, was googling and she said, oh, they had like some trouble with their manager and like had to get new management and like there was some like some shows like they fucked up their tour schedule and stuff. Um, and we're like, okay. And then at the, they come back on and they do comfortably numb. And uh, the guy singing it is dressed up in like a lab coat and holding like a big fake syringe and like reviving a patient what? while singing what? the song. And uh, my friend Sarah leads over to me and says, Did their manager tell them not to do this skit? <laughs> <laughs> it was unbelievably dumb. The other, oh, another thing from the, for the show is that uh, when they did Wish You Were Here, or shine on you crazy diamond, probably both. Um, they kept putting up on the on the projection screen like like photos and videos of Sid Barrett, and we're like, they should be like putting up pictures of like some other guy. Yeah, right, because they're a cover band. They should have a cover of the guy who isn't in the. Oh, band. that's
1: genius. That, that's absolutely <laughs> wouldn't that have genius. Been great? And here's a picture of John Cougar Mellencamp.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we do we do wish he was here. That would be so cool. <laughs>
1: Uh, but the venue I mean <laughs> the
0: venue is amazing yes what can I say about Red Rocks that you haven't already heard
1: well well there's always this argument with people who go to a lot of shows Red Rocks the Gorge and I think that they're completely different but
0: yeah they're really different
1: but I've been to the Gorge so many times that Red Rocks feel special to me and probably people who live in Colorado when they go to the Gorge are like wow this is sure. unbelievable both worth it if you've never been
0: alright what are you listening to
1: so uh, very mainstream this month but I'm totally okay with that. Uh, Foo Fighters put out their first uh, post-Taylor Hawkins album, which is called But Here We Are. And it's a really solid showing. Yeah. Dave is playing drums on all the tracks. Um, they just finally replaced uh, Taylor Hawkins with Josh. Uh, uh, why,
0: why are you making me try and remember the guy's name? Uh, the drummy guy.
1: Josh Fries. Who who has a roster that is or that is unbelievable, um, but the album is really really good. Like I I enjoy it. It's got its sad moments. It's got its rock moments. Yeah. And the standout is the next to the last track is called the Teacher. It feels a little bit like a tribute to Taylor. Um, I'm sure Dave would deny that, but it's ten minutes long, and it actually really works as a ten minutes. Yeah, song.
0: when I saw it, I saw it come up on on uh, YouTube first, and uh, and I was like, 10 minute uh, Foo Fighters video? This is gonna be like, there's gonna be like a whole bunch of like acting before the song comes in." But no, it is a ten minute song, and it's really well done.
1: And then uh, Friday, Janelle Monet put out her new album, The Age of Pleasure, which is a bit of a reinvention departure for her. It's more accessible. It's more pop and hip hop riffs and beats and she says in interviews she was trying to make more of a dance album and even went around and did like shows for her friends before the album came out with all of the tracks to make sure that people would basically throw a party to it yeah because that's what she was trying to accomplish and it's called age of pleasure and and so it's another concept album for her, and it's just fantastic. She is just a fascinating individual, and more talented than just about anybody on the planet.
0: Um, yeah, I, I I have not listened to it yet. I'm very excited to do so. Probably later today, and uh, we should. In case in case anyone is wondering, like I checked this before, and uh, Janelle Monae goes by uh, she, they pronouns. Uh, they're fine with either one.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, okay, uh, my I'm the opposite of you this month. I've got some indie shit for you. Um, I am totally obsessed right now with the band The Reds, Pinks, and Purples, um, which is a solo project from this San Francisco guy who has been in some other bands named Glenn Donaldson. And it's like you know twee, sad indie songs like Sarah Records, uh, Bell and Sebastian kind of stuff. And what makes them special is. Three things. So this first of all, the songs are really, really good, catchy, catchy songs. And they are absurdly prolific. So uh, he started the project in 2019 and has released seven full lengths since then. So like like King Gizzard type, Which, of, type of deal.
1: Yes, but this is shocking because I just looked him up. And King Gizzard, it feels to me like they should be prolific because they're in their late 20s, early 30s. Glenn Donaldson is 51 years old. Yeah, looks he's like me, as much. right?
0: Um, and uh, plus some singles and some EPs and some covers and stuff. Uh, he does amazing album covers based on his own photog- San Francisco photography. It's like the most San Francisco photos you've ever seen. Um, and so like, where do you begin? I would start with the album, They Only Wanted Your Soul, which is from last year. Um, and the first song is called, I Should Have Helped You. So if you want to get an idea of what, what a Red's, Pigs and Purple's lyric is like, it starts, I, I should have helped you. That's what decent people do. Really good. Uh, And Blood Ceremony, one of my favorite bands, has a new album called "The Old Ways Remain," and it rules. It is like pure, like '70s sleaze and cheese, uh, occult influenced, uh, like witch rock. It's great.
1: That sounds right up my alley. I gotta, I gotta check this out. And and you're like the third person this week who I've heard mention this band. And I and I know nothing about them, so I think I need to check this out for
0: sure. Yeah, like the thing the thing about Bloods are like everyone in it plays incredibly well. They got flutes. the The lead singer is also a flutist and plays like awesome flute solos. And just their songwriting is like like a couple levels above what you what you need to do to be this kind of band. And like these songs will. Stay dick in well, your head
1: well I love it because you look them up and the genres listed for the are prog rock psych rock doom metal and folk rock
0: yeah I would not describe them as doom metal like they're not they're not that heavy but uh, but they're really fun
1: nice uh, all right anything else
0: I think that'll do it okay uh, find us online at uh, hidden jukebox.com facebook.com hidden jukebox Instagram uh, at jukebox
1: Until next time, I'm Jake Amster.
0: And I'm Matthew Amster-Burton.